Hey, this is Lee Snow. I'm the preacher of Orange Springs Road Church of Christ, and this is our podcast. I wanted to thank you for downloading today. I hope it inspires you. I hope it builds your faith. I hope it gives you a perspective to see what God wants to do in your life. And I hope it challenges you to a faithful tomorrow. Good morning. If you want to, you can go ahead and open up to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16. Now, I was going, first off, I was going to wear a jacket, but it's hot. All right, um, I was going to see just who noticed, but I'll go ahead and tell you ahead of time. I will, I will openly admit that I preached... This same passage of scripture, this same week last year. I didn't realize that until after I had planned it. And y'all know me, I can't change plans. So, But, 1 Samuel chapter 16. We're going over the battles of the Old Testament and New Testament that shaped the history of the Bible. Shaped the history of mankind and of faith. And so we've talked about already... Battles that, well, like Jericho, where God does all the work. We've seen battles where we're really not given much, like the Battle of Aphek, except an application-based text about a battle. And then today, we're going to see a battle that is a little bit of both. And not only a little bit of both, but it's also... One of the least eventful battles in the entire Bible. And that is the battle, the battle of Soka. You may not know where that is, but if you read ahead a little bit, you might figure it out. Alright, so 1 Samuel chapter 16. What we find in 1 Samuel 16 is Samuel has been called as a prophet. We talked about that last week. Samuel's been called as a prophet, but now... Saul has, he's gone too far. God didn't want the people of Israel to have a king in the first place. But they kept on, they kept insisting that he give them a king. And so he gives them one. And he tells them, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to command your king to read my law and to make a copy of my law and to follow my law. And he's not going to do it. Because, isn't it interesting, sometimes when we want to make the decisions for ourselves, God allows us to make the decisions so that we can see just how bad at making decisions we really are. So that's what happens. They keep asking for a king. God says, fine, here's a king. You can have a king. I'll call Saul as king. Full well knowing what kind of man Saul was going to be, that he was going to completely turn his back on God on a number of occasions. In fact, in this passage that we're going to talk about today, Saul is referred to as having fear. The the number one character trait that we find in scripture about King Saul is that he was fearful. And so God calls Saul. And now Saul has overstepped the boundary one too many times. He's lost the kingship. God is going to call a new king. And so in 1 Samuel 16, Samuel goes to the house of a man named Jesse because God has told him that in Jesse's house is going to be the next king of Israel. So he goes and he sees all of Jesse's sons. They all they, they line up in front of him. They're, you know, you've always seen, you may have seen the VeggieTales version of this, or you may have seen the VBS version of this. 
where all the, all the sons of Jesse come in and they're, they're big and strapping and they're, they're muscular and they look like they could just battle till Jesus comes back long before Jesus ever came the first time. And then all of those don't work. God doesn't call any of those. And so Samuel looks at Jesse and says, do you have any other sons? And in the, the story that we've always been thinking about, the way, the, the way we've always been told it is that Jesse says, well, we, we have the other son. His name's David. He's out in the field. And then we imagine a young little boy walking in, right? Maybe a, a 13, 14-year-old boy who's been out watching the sheep. Now, I don't know how old David was at the time when he was called to be king of Israel. We're not really given... We are given that he was a young man, but that can be anywhere from the time of bat mitzvah, uh, uh, 13 years old, to the time of, of fighting age. So we don't really know how old he is. Somewhere between 13 and 21. However, here's the catch. When you're a man in that time period and a prophet of God is going to come to your house and he's going to call one of your sons to be the king over Israel, in that time period, really and truly, I mean, let's be honest. If you had multiple sons, if you have four sons, five sons, six sons, however many sons you have, they are, they're just insurance for the first one. The first son is the only one of, of any importance. And if he dies, then we have some more sons. That's really the only reason to have more sons in that time period. So don't fault Jesse for leaving David out in the, in the field watching the sheep. Number two, Don't fault David for being left out in the field watching the sheep. Because here's the thing. Later on, we're going to read the the story of David, the the life history of David, king of Israel, before he became king. You're not going to leave a small, little, defenseless boy out in the field watching what amounts to all of your wealth. When David is out in the field, it's not because he's just meaningless and because nobody counts him. David is out in the field because chances are he's not going to be called. And we need someone to watch the sheep. You're not going to leave a defenseless boy to watch all of your money where there are lions and bears and robbers and so forth. So David is not some little 13-year-old defenseless boy when we find him in 1 Samuel 16. But, fast forward now to chapter 17. He's not defenseless in 16, but when we get to 17, we still don't know. We don't know how long it has passed between 16 when he's called, first chapter 16 when he's called, and chapter 17 when we pick up the story of the battle of Soka. So, verse number 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soka, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soka and Azekah. In Ephes Damim. All right, hard stop real quick. Let's talk about this Ephes Damim. Um, the word Ephes Damim means the place of blood. That's the place where it's at, the, it's at slightly the northern part, northern edge of really the homeland. And Jerusalem, Israel, they controlled land past the Ephes Damim, but that was the place I heard one commentator say that if the armies rolled through a city and said, we need all the men and and young men and everyone to gather your weapons and meet us at the Ephes Damim, that was the place where 
This is the last straw. If they get past here, we can't defend the home anymore, which means the invaders are in our homes. They're in our cities. They're destroying everything if they get past the Ephes Damim. And so history tells us that when they got there and they were going to battle, the, the leaders of the armies of Israel would say that you choose the rock on which your blood will be shed. The idea is that you pick the rock that you're going to stand on and you tell yourself the only way the army is going to get past this rock is literally over my dead body. This is the last stand. I will choose this rock and my job is to protect this rock and the other people will protect their rocks, but it's my job to protect this one. That's the Ephes Damim. Now, We'll get applications here in a little bit when we get done telling the story. But the Ephes Damim. So Philistines have already gotten there. And now we pick up in verse number 2. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah. And drew up in line against the battle against, sorry, drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley in between them. And there came out from the camp of Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height, the English standard says, six cubits and a span. A cubit is roughly 18 inches, and a span is, I have medium-sized hands, a span is the the length of a medium-sized hand. So, relatively speaking, he's about nine and a half feet tall. This giant from Gath shows up. And he's going to do something that is pretty common in that time period. It'd be strange for us to do that today, but he's going to do something pretty common. Look down at verse number 8. He shouted, he stood and shouted rather, to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not servants of Saul? Come and choose a man for yourselves and let him draw down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then he, I, we will be your servants But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. All right, let's talk about who Goliath is for just a second. Um, There's some speculation about Goliath's health at this point. Chances are he's about 40 years old and he's been fighting for 20 years now. But he's 9 feet 6 inches. And if you've ever, if you're ever a fan of um, old vintage wrestling, I'm going to say vintage instead of old. So, you know, anyways, if you're a fan of old wrestling, there was a man by the name of Andre the Giant, right? Now, I'm no doctor. And. I don't even watch doctor shows on TV. But I am told that men like that, like Andre the Giant, like men that get that tall, some of the tallest people in the world, have a medical condition that causes them to grow so tall. The largest, the tallest man in the world has this medical condition. Goliath is probably somewhere around the same height as the tallest man that is living today. This medical condition has a few character traits. You have very large hands, very long arms in proportion to your body, very long legs in proportion to your body. And it also causes your eyesight to go bad. So, 
let's, let's look at this again. Back up. I know we didn't read it. But back up to verse number 7. Samuel is speaking of how big his, his battle armor and, and weaponry is. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his, his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. That's 15 pounds. And his shield-bearer went before him. There's a lot of speculation of why, why is his shield-bearer... This man's 9 feet 6 inches. He's got all these weights. He's got got these giant weapons why does he need someone to carry a shield for him here's the thing Goliath's eyesight is probably pretty bad and so later on in the story when we when we read of David going down to fight Goliath Goliath is going to say something that is strange he looks at David in front of him and he says why have you come to me with sticks but if you read the text which we will hear in just a second David doesn't have any sticks. He left the battle armor with Saul because it wasn't tested. We'll talk about that too. It wasn't tested. All all David has is some stones in one hand and his sling, which has two strips of cord, probably leather cord, that probably looked to Saul like sticks. So Saul, sorry, Goliath. So Goliath, his eyesight is failing, but he's an old warrior. This man is tested. He's battle-proven. He is the champion. In that time period, it's normal for nations to do this. You don't, you don't want all of your warriors dying in battle for, for no reason. I mean, the Philistines and Israel have been fighting back and forth for years now. Saul just overthrew the Philistines just a few years before this. And so chances are... That Israel's going to mount an offensive at some point in the future if Philistines win. And they don't really want, they, they just don't want to lose so many warriors. So, in that case, in that time period, they would send their champion, Goliath of Gath. And the other, bat, the other battling army would send their champion, whoever that was. And those people would battle. So what, what Goliath is doing is not unnatural, it's not... It's not strange for that time period. This is something that they would normally do. So, Goliath stands there, and as he says, uh, he, verse, let's see, verse number 10, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. And so, back home, you see David's brothers are in battle there at the Valley of Elah at Soka. Back home, there's David. And we always see him as the young boy who is back home tending the sheep, who's a small teenager, and he's not old enough to, he's not old enough to go into the army. He's not old. Throw that idea of David out the window, okay? That's not correct idea of who David is in chapter 17. You see, Numbers chapter 13 says that in a family of multiple sons, only three of those sons were allowed to go to battle. Because, like today... Well, I'm not even sure if they do it today, but in World War II, you've seen, you know, Saving Private Ryan and so forth, where they don't want all of a mother's children being eliminated in battle. And so Numbers 13 says you send three sons to battle, and you leave all the rest at home. That way, if those three pass away, if those three die in battle, you you still have children to carry on your bloodline. So David is not at home because he wasn't old enough to be in battle. 
David is at home because he's not old enough to meet the age requirement. He's got three older brothers, and they get to go to battle, and he doesn't. And so Jesse sends some food with David to go to the, to the armies, and he says, I want you to bring some money back to prove to me that my sons are still alive. So that's exactly what David does. He shows up, and in fact, in the story, his brother even says, why are you here? I know what you're doing. You're trying to get, you see why? You see, David isn't just, David, David's not just trying to get the accolades. He's old enough to be in battle. In fact, when David goes to face Goliath, he has that sling, remember? That sling would be about the width of your arm span, and you would take it and you'd cut your string or your piece of leather that long and you would, you would put a pouch in the middle of it and you would tie a knot around one side so it could fit over your middle finger or your index finger and you would have the other side loose. And you would take that sling and you'd put a rock in it, just like a slingshot of sorts, except the slingshots that we, you may have had a slingshot when you were a kid. I, I did when I was a kid. I remember growing up in tenth, on 10th Street in Arab. All of my neighbors hated us because me and Joseph Tugal down the street had slingshots and BB guns, and we took out every Mockingjay and every, every blue... Uh, I know it's not a good thing, but we did it. This isn't just a little slingshot. This is a battle weapon. Israel, when they go against the Philistines, Israel doesn't have the type of weaponry that the Philistines have. The Philistines are already into the Iron Age. Israel is not. They have bronze weapons, which means they have f- probably flint arrows. And Israel is not known for their, for their arrows. They're not known for their archers. What they're known for is a class of warrior called the slinger. And guys, all right, you guys that hunt a lot, listen to me. This is going to be interesting to you. Okay? I love squirrel season. It starts in... A month, a little, little over a month. I can hit a squirrel at about 150 yards, no question. When it gets past that, it gets a little tough. I can't hit a moving squirrel past 150 yards. I'm not that good. However, a slinger in the army of Israel could hit a flying bird with a rock the size of a quarter at 200 yards. If you were going to go into, arm, into the battle, you had to be able to hit a flying bird at the equivalent of 200 yards with a rock the size of a quarter. And what they would do is they'd take this sling, they'd put the rock in it, they'd point it, they'd sling, and they'd throw it. And there were three different ways, but anyways, can you tell which story in the Bible is my favorite story? All right, so these slingers, David is one of those. You didn't just become a slinger by accident. David is trained. You see, the thing is, he has three older sons, so he can't go to battle but when those three older, uh, three older brothers, rather, when, he, when those three older brothers die in battle, guess who's up? David. He's already a trained warrior. When we find David in 17, he is not a little 14-year-old boy with a slingshot taking out Mockingjays in the neighbor's backyard. He is a trained warrior who is the equivalent of an ancient sniper. And he goes to Saul, and he says, I want Goliath. And Saul gives him his battle array. 
Look down at verse some. Let's see verse number 38. Well, first off, well, we'll get back to that in just a second. Saul gives David his armor, verse 38. He put on the helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him in coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor and he tried in vain to go, but he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot go with these for I have not tested them. So David put them off. It's not because they're too big. Saul's a pretty big guy, but so was David. The problem is, David is not a light infantry. He's not the guy that wears the armor and carries a sword. He's the sniper. All he needs... You see, when David goes down there, earlier when Saul said, you can't go against Goliath, you're, you're just a young boy, you're not battle-tested. This man has been fighting since before you were alive, David. David says... I have two things on my side. Number one, I have fought lions. I have snatched sheep out of the mouths of lions. Okay, again, a little 14-year-old boy is not going to run up to a lion and grab him by the mane and force his mouth open to get a sheep out of it. It's just not possible. This man is ready. So he goes to Saul, and Saul says, you can't do it. And he says, I have that on my side, but I also have... This thing that happened in chapter 16. Go back to verse, chapter 16, verse 13. Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David and from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. You see, David doesn't just have the past experiences of fighting lions and, and taking out enemies that, that were trying to steal the sheep. He has this thing that happened in chapter 16. He's been anointed by God Almighty. And the Spirit of God has rushed on him. From that moment on, in chapter 16, verse 13, David's path is already set. There is a Goliath waiting to die at the Valley of Elah. There is an army of Philistines that are waiting to die all the way from Elah to Gath. There is a man who is going to become king of Israel who is going to be something that doesn't happen in that time period. David took 12 warring factions of the Israelite nation and combined them into a a tremendous force. David's life is already set. And so David says, I know I can do this. So Saul gives him the armor. And David says, I can't take this armor. I'm not an infantryman. I can't fight with a sword. You see, David isn't going to go into a battle that he's not prepared for. He knows what he needs, and so he's going to do that. So on his way down to the bottom of the valley, he picks up some stones. He walks out, and Goliath begins to taunt him. Back to chapter 17 now. Verse, um, Verse number 40. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five stones from the brook, and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. The Philistine moved forward and came near to David. Why do you have to come near? Because he couldn't see him. With his shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Come to me. 
Why does, he have to, why does he need David to come to him? Because one, he's blind. Two, he's an infantryman. He wants to fight hand-to-hand combat. And David's not going to do that. David knows where his place is. David knows that his power is at a distance. And so he doesn't, he doesn't go up there. David said to verse 45, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down. Okay, there's a little man-on-man, uh, macho-imano types. Mano-imano, I, I don't speak French. Anyways, this is some, some manly trash talking going on here. Goliath says, I'm going to kill you, and I'm going to feed your body to the birds. And David says, oh yeah, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to cut off your head, and I'm going to feed the, armies, the bodies of your army to the birds. So they're, they're trash talking here. They're, they're, they're getting one up on each other. Goliath knows that if David comes in, there's no way David can beat him. And David knows that if Goliath stands there, there's no way he can beat him. This day, the Lord, verse 46, will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. Then the Philistine arose I just want to point something out here. We've talked now for 47 verses. And the battle hasn't even begun yet. Are you ready for the battle part? When the Philistines arose and came and drew near to, to meet David, David ran quickly toward the, toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in his bag, took out a stone, and slung it. Uh, slung it at... Mm, about half the speed that a 22 long rifle bullet leaves the end of the barrel. He slung it faster than any baseball pitcher can ever throw. He slung it so fast that he could hit a flying bird at 200 yards without even trying. This is old hat to David. He took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. Stone sank into his forehead and fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. That's the battle. It's over. We've talked for 47 verses leading up to the battle, and then the battle is over like that. David runs up. He does exactly what he says. He cuts off the head of Goliath, they chased the Philistines all the way as far as Gath, verse 40, or 52. The people of Israel came to chasing the Philistines. They plundered their camp. David took the head of the Philistine, brought it to, to Jerusalem, and he put Goliath's armor in his tent to always remind him of what happened at the Valley of Elah. Now, this story in, in Scripture is... Um, and like I said, it is one of my favorite stories, but not, not because of the gore, not because really of the fact, I mean, I, 
Uh, I was told yesterday I am somewhat of a contrarian. Maybe that's true. I don't know. I think we've missed most of the story of David and Goliath because we've forgotten who Goliath was. We've forgotten who David was. You know, still today, every single March Madness, every single Super Bowl, every single major sporting event, people want to root for the underdog. It's a David and Goliath story. You ever heard that? Now here's the catch. What we call a David and Goliath story is not what happened in 1 Samuel 17. There was no way David was going to lose that battle. Number one, he had God on his side. Number two, he has trained for this day his entire life. When he goes down to meet his brothers, his brothers get mad at him because they know that if David comes and he actually gets to fight, he's going to make all of us look like fools. We're his older brothers. He's not even supposed to be here. There's no way David is going to lose that battle. And then David does exactly what he knows he needs to do to win the battle. I don't need to go rushing in with a sword. That's not my strength. David knows his place, he knows his strength, and he knows what he's good at. And he does exactly that. So here are a couple um, applications for you as we, as we draw near. Number one, all the way back in verse number one of chapter 17, there is a major problem. This chapter should have never happened. Ever. When we find the Philistines in 1 Samuel 17, they are already at the Ephes Damim. They're already at the place of blood. And there's no account of any fighting going on before that. Application number one. Don't let the enemy get to your stronghold without a fight. They should have never let the Philistines get that far. But when we find them in 1 Samuel 17, they are that far. And now they're on their heels. In the New Testament, we're told that we don't fight a battle that is physical. We fight a battle that is spiritual. And if we're going to fight that battle, we cannot allow our enemy, the adversary, Satan, to get us on our heels. We can't let him get to the point of the Ephesdamim. We have, to get him, we have to fight him before he gets there. We have so many people that say, well, I, don't, I, don't, I just don't know what happened. I was fine, and then this temptation came up, and I, I just gave in. Well, I don't know what happened. My family fell apart. I don't know why my family fell apart. It's like all of a sudden it just came up. It's because we let him in. We let him too far. And if we give him, and you've, you've heard me say a thousand times, don't ever tell yourself, I'll never have a problem with blank sin. Because the minute you do, you've told Satan, you're Ephes Damim. You've told him, oh, well, they're already backed up to there on that one. All it's going to take is a little pushing, and they'll give up. You see, Satan is not that intelligent, but he is pretty tricky. And he, he's good at his job. It's a self-proclaimed job, but he's good at it. He knows that... When, when push comes to shove, even the oldest battle-hardened, as it were, Christian, it doesn't take too much to push them over the edge if I get them to the, on their heels. Number two, verse number 10, verse number 16, or 26. Goliath comes and he says something that we may glance over. 
He says, I come to defy the armies of Israel. And then verse 26, I'm coming to defy the God of the armies of Israel. In Acts 9, Paul speaking to the Christ, and Christ says, why are you persecuting me? Have you noticed Paul didn't say, oh, I'm not persecuting you, Jesus. I'm just doing what you, I'm doing what you told me to do. You told me that I'm supposed to kill false teachers, and I believe they're false. There's not a, there's not a conversation. There's not a theological conversation going on between Jesus and Paul. When Paul meets Jesus, Jesus understands, Jesus exemplifies the fact that when you defy the people of Israel, you're defying Israel's God. When you defy the church, you're defying God himself. And let me say this to, to, some, of, to some of us. Maybe we need this, maybe we don't. Maybe someone that listens to this later needs this, maybe we don't. Too many people today say, well, the church doesn't blank. The church doesn't believe blank. The church doesn't do blank. Well, you know, the church doesn't believe in that, but, you know, I don't know. It's not the church. Yesterday, I told you in Bible class, I had a long discussion with a woman who, um, who I hope obeys the gospel one day. This woman asked me what the church of Christ believes. And I said, really? Just what God said. And she kind of chuckled. And I did too. Because that's kind of a cop out. You see, I was, I was doing something that I tell y'all never to do. But I wasn't seeing the opportunity very well. And I was trying to worry about something that I shouldn't have been worrying about. I had, I had how many did we have, 16 golfers out on the golf course yesterday. And I'm trying to bunny hop Wes and another guy around so that none of them cheat. And we're doing all this work, making sure nobody cheats. And then I'm pretty sure, some, pretty sure that somebody actually did cheat. And they may have gotten checked by the end of it. But anyways, um, I'm worried about all that. And she asked me, what does the Church of Christ believe? And I said, well, really, just what the Bible says. And she said, okay, what does that mean? And I said, here's our thing. We just want to go by the New Testament. We just want to go by what God said, which means sometimes we make a mistake and we have to fix that. Sometimes, but sometimes we fail, but our goal is to be the Christians that you can read about in the New Testament. You see, the church isn't an entity in and of itself. The church doesn't believe anything. The church doesn't do anything without Christ saying it and doing it first. And when you defy the church, you defy God himself. It's not, that, it's not those people in that building. It's God himself. Next up. Last but not least. When David goes to the Valley of Elah, he has faith. And we often forget what faith is. Hebrews 11.1 1 says it's the substance of things hoped for. And the CSB, I love the Christian Standard Version in that one. It says the confidence is what we have. It says the conviction of things not seen. Faith is the conviction of things not seen. David had faith. David had never fought a giant before. But he had fought lions. 
and he was a slinger. And he had never been to war before because his brothers were older than him. But he had faith. See, faith isn't the, the foundation of action. Faith fills in the gaps of action. And what I mean by that is this. Faith fills in the gaps that we don't know about. Biblical understanding and knowledge of the truth is the foundation. David knows, I have God on my side. I have fought lions. I am a trained sniper. I have never battled a giant before. But I know that the other three things are going to take care of the giant part. That's real victorious faith. Faith is, is the, the filling in the gaps, knowing that God is going to provide the confidence because we know that he's never left us before. And what Tony talked about this past Wednesday, our vantage point. David has a unique vantage point when it comes to Goliath. What Goliath doesn't know is back in chapter 16, David was, was anointed by God. What Goliath doesn't know is back a few months ago when that lion came in and stole that sheep, David chased him down and grabbed him by the mane. Let's just pause there for just a second. David grabbed a lion by the mane and pried a sheep out of his mouth and then killed the lion. Is, is it just me? Or... Uh, if I, the, I know Goliath is blind because if he knew David and he could see that it was David standing there, Goliath would have run for his life. You see, David had victorious faith. The faith that God will fill in the gaps, the confidence that he's never left us before, and the unique vantage point that David had that said, there is no possible way that Goliath wins this battle. And I think there's something in that for us. I think, I think that as Christians, we need to remember that sometimes we don't understand how it's going to work out, but it will work out. And that we have a vantage point that no one else does. See, Satan is not all-knowing. Look at Job chapter 1. He's not all-knowing. Because if he was, he would have never finished the book of Job. He would have known that Job was not going to give in to his temptations. And so he would have just given up. Satan is not all-knowing. Satan does not know our vantage point. He does not know what has happened in our lives. He does not know where we're coming from. And we have the edge up. We have the leg up. We have the advantage. If you need to become a Christian this morning, we're going to stand and sing a song of encouragement for you. Please let us know. Don't allow yourself to leave a worship service of the body of Christ not knowing the truth, not obeying the truth. Because if you do, let me, just, let me just throw this out here. If you do know the truth and you don't obey it when you have the chance, you have shown Satan your Ephes Damim. You've shown him just how easy it is to get him, for him to get you to give up. If you need to become a Christian this morning, we're going to stand and sing a song of encouragement for you. If you're willing to be baptized for the remission of your sins then you can become a Christian today. However, if you already are a Christian, um, I want to I know this. Are we, are we Goliath in the battle 
where we can't see what's coming and we think we're bigger than we really are. We think we're more powerful than we really are. And we think that we're indestructible. We're the Christian who will never sin. All well knowing that we're caught up in a sin right now. Or are we David, knowing that there's no way we can lose? If you need to become a Christian or you need to respond because of sin, let us know while we stand and Gary leads us in a song.